When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Have you ever had to leave something behind that you really loved? Yeah, um, my grandparents used to have a lake house, and so that was like the thing to do around 4th of July, and that came with a whole set of traditions, you know, going on my grandfather's boat and like having, you know, barbecue and the fireworks from the neighbors and stuff and like they're potentially a little dangerous because the house was so old Mm. like it would go up like a like a pine needle and just after he died you know I mean the house is together because he was maintaining it so like with bubble gum and like duct tape obviously it was very hard when he died in general but then it was like that summer we said goodbye to the the house and that was really hard and I also had to give up traditions i mean i've built new ones um with my friends because they growing up were always mad that i wasn't around for fourth of july because our town really goes ham on fireworks it's little town big bang is what they call it like (laughs) it's professional grade previously in greater boston i think i'm going to change my name freed friend paletti I'll go relieve Ethan of his current obligations and send him to you. Melissa shoved Oliver into the red rat. Can we go on a date soon? I can't be there for someone who wasn't there for me. The place is Wonderland. This week in Greater Boston, episode 36, Division Signs. Hmm. What? What? Easy, easy. It's me, Gemma. I was just checking on you, see how you were holding up. Where? Where am I? Where's my family? What's that noise? The answer to all those questions are related. You're in the fun house at Wonderland. Your family is currently remodeling it to fit their energy-efficient needs. Hence the noise. Here, drink some water. Thank you, Gemma. I'm sorry about your ball. I should have returned it to you right away, but, well, I'm sure you're going to call me a crazy-headed carrot-munching goon or something of the like, but when I first picked it up in the third side parking lot, it spoke to me and gave me a vision of something. Something that made me think I could save my family, the commune. The voice was Leon Stamatis. Michael told me all about it. His spirit is trapped in the ball. You mean, you believe me? 
You believe that this is happening to your ball? You know what's funny? I do. I really do. The ball always had this weird, comforting effect on me. Ever since I was looking for a new editor, and it landed on Leon's resume. But I thought you told me it was a piece of trash. I believed it was. It's possible the publisher gifted you the genuine article. And then once he realized the full potential of its power, wanted it back. And now he has it, thanks to me. Oh, by the goddess's ascended eye, curse my selfishness. Hey, easy fella. You did what you needed to do for your family. <laughs> What's so humorous? My reflections. Look, my needle of a neck with a head the size of Plymouth Rock. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And this one makes me look comically obese, while here I appear both stout and thin simultaneously. Right. I was thinking a minute ago. Being in here reminds me of working at Third Sight. I spent so much time looking around, created all these distorted impressions of people. I'd zoom in on the exaggerations, the ugliness, the things that stood out, things I didn't like, things I hated. But my reflection was in that hall of mirrors, too. Just as distorted and grotesque. And whenever it popped into my field of vision, I'd look away, focus on the reflections of others. You, for example. Eventually, I got so good at averting my eyes, I couldn't see my own reflection. But when I looked into that ball, I could see myself clearly again. And I know who has it now. And I'm going to get it back. And may the goddess guide you. The one thing I don't get, um, I free-palmed the ball plenty, but never got a whiff of the same crazy voices you and Michael did. I imagine that's because the ball is yours, although I would caution against that particular phrase, honestly. Why is that? It may be your ball, but if there's a spirit of a man trapped inside it, you must ask yourself, does the ball belong to you or to him? Time to find out. See you around, freed friend. Take care of yourself. You... you remembered? Yeah. Little secret? I always remembered. Good morning, Mr. West. Mr. Sales, is it? Uh, Mr. Lawyer. But please, call me Lawyer. Yes. If you'll excuse me, I need to get to a meeting inside Ethan's lab. Oh, that won't be necessary, Mr. West. I'm here to inform you that your presence at the meeting is no longer required. What on earth are you talking about? I set the meeting up in the first place. Well, it seems your colleague, Mr. Bespin, is quite upset about what happened when you were, uh, well, lab-sitting for him. And, as you know, he was quite attached to Wonderland. He's fighting mad that you forced him to come here, leaving it vacant for those pesky squatters. Therefore, the Bespins have requested to speak with representatives of my association directly from this point forward. And since that would help cut through all the meddlesome red tape and eliminate any needed middlemen such as yourself, we have responded to that request with great enthusiasm. Hugh, you're cutting me out. 
but we had a deal. So we did. And as you can see here, page 33, paragraph 5, line 132, augmented with footnote 41b, we've met the obligations of said deal, which is to secure you with a new identity to avoid legal recourse connected with your former misdeeds. The deal was to ensure Emily won control over Redline, and I pumped a considerable amount of my personal finances into ensuring that would happen. Yes, but we never promised anything in return for such an endeavor in writing. We merely gave you a little nudge and permission to finish your work, and we appreciate your work immensely. Once our association moves our new headquarters into the converted downtown crossing station, privatizes your city-run industries, raises the rent on all those cute little mom-and-pop space savers until they're priced out, renovates commercial real estate, installs our own retail operations in their vacant locations, our profits are bound to soar. Oh, and we're buying up all those freshly empty rail homes, too. We'll renovate a handful of those into luxury condo show homes, smartly market them to the wealthiest around, and convert Redline into the trendiest, most desired neighborhood in the greater Boston area. <laughs> you... You conned me. I won't let you get away with this. Get away with what, Mr. West? We never broke any laws, after all. You did that for us. Thank you. My nephew. I need to speak to Emily about my nephew. Yes, you see, the thing you need to understand is, with Emily being in control of the city now, we want Redline to project the appearance of a strong, secure, and safe environment. While with the lottery attack still fresh in everyone's minds, it's important to put the issue to bed and put everyone at ease, especially future investors and our desired real estate clientele. You need a fall guy. <laughs> the perfect choice would be the man responsible for the attacks, but unfortunately he is no longer with us. May I make a suggestion? You originally set this plan in motion so that your media empire could profit from your control over this very municipality, correct? Redline does need a news outlet, a friendly one at that. We'd be happy to have you involved with that endeavor. You want me to be your propagandist? You say tomato, I say tomato. I, I believe you're supposed to pronounce that word differently in order for it to have the desired effect. Oh, I did. Couldn't you hear the difference? Tomato. Tomato. Yes. Of course, I'll need some time to think this over. In the meantime, if Ethan is so concerned with the state of Wonderland, I suggest you look up who legally owns the property and consider making a deal with them. Ah, 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 don't forget. Oliver West is dead. Dead men don't hold bargaining chips. Oliver West is dead, and Oliver West had a will, which he kept meticulously updated, in case of any accidents. I see. 
Of course, being dead, Mr. West should know that if his estate is handled in accordance with his final wishes, as outlined in his last will and testament, all his benefactors will need to be informed of his untimely demise, and the remainder of Mr. West's assets will be promptly frozen and turned over to the will's listed estate holders, friends, and, of course, family members so as not to raise any suspicions concerning the undeniable fact of Mr. West's death. Mr. West must remain dead. To everyone. Always. Even... Even Ada. Especially Ada. But, But he'll inherit what I've left him. What you have left to leave him, yes. But he'll never see his father again. The poor thing. I see. And of course, Mr. Carrington Vandermont will be penniless. Yes, a fresh start for a new man. A steep price to ensure your child inherits Wonderland, no? It would be. Except I didn't leave Wonderland to Ada. Most everything else... But not Wonderland. It seems I have a lot to consider, Mr. Lawyer. Please. Just. Lawyer. Hmm. No. Good day. Leave something behind that I ever loved? No. Actually, I don't think I remember a time when I had to leave something I loved, but probably sometimes I... I might have lost something, like I lost a valuable hat uh, um, and uh, like airplane. I forgot I left behind, you know, stuff like that. I moved. My mo- I was staying with my mother, and I moved to go stay with my father. So I, I've done that before, you know, leaving my mother because I love her and my little brothers. So. But that's the only time. My family, I left home pretty young, and it wasn't like I left home to go to college. I left home to travel and went away with a hippie boyfriend to Florida and left my parents, and I was really close to them. It was really, really hard to do that. I cried and cried and cried. Every time I came up to visit them and would leave, I was I would feel desperate about it. And it was just everything, the house, them, the pets that we had. I had a pet turtle. <laughs> <laughs> and um, name? his name was Rango, <laughs> after like a a movie character in an animated movie. When I was a little kid, I went to get a uh, Botox injection for cerebral palsy reasons. And it was like, for a child, a pretty dramatic experience because I was getting a big shot. And there's like, I was used to doctors at that point, but like it was a big event. So I was really upset and afraid it would hurt. And while I was there, I left behind the stuffed animal I had brought for like comfort and never got it back. So that was like, child traumatic for weeks. Unfortunately, we couldn't really take care of him and there was also no pets allowed in the house we are moving into. So we had to unfortunately give him away. I tend to stay very much in an online space and I find that to be really difficult to move from from one group that I've felt uh, accepted by and like I had a position in and to try to to move forward into a new uh, space or group that uh, that I, I feel has a better path forward. I mean, Ellis and I are still friends, but I am sad that we didn't work out. And we could, but again, it's my concern about 
their safety with my family that's made me turn them down. As in my adult life, I think the biggest thing I've had to leave behind is moving from Chicago, where I was growing up, uh, to Boston. But honestly, that's worked out really well, and I don't regret it at all. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I didn't leave them behind, but it feels like I did. I left behind something that would have made me really happy and would have hopefully made them happy as well. And now that eviction day is here, Redline wasted no time promptly and justifiably evicting the former citizens who had violated their Durrell home contracts by barring their doors, closed commuters, and other citizens in the name of economic terrorism. Really, Chuck? When asked really? For comments on how Isabel Powell's exodus impacted her eviction Charlotte. plans. Jesus, Mayor you Beskin scared the crap out of me. How long have you been in here? Powell, just now. I need to talk to you. Okay, just let me ask you one thing first, and please be honest with me. I will. Are... are we okay? Like, we had that huge fight, and then we never really addressed it, and now neither of us even have jobs, and we have Monty, and, and we're living in a theme park, and we have a rail home back in Redline with all of our stuff, and, 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 and this whole thing is my fault, Gemma. No. No, it isn't. It is, and you tried to tell me, you tried to warn me not to give it up, and I didn't listen to you, and now people are getting evicted from their goddamn homes, all because I dropped out of the race. You don't know that. There are so many factors that went into this crazy election between Isabel's boy. But that's kind of on me too. And Emily's dog whistling. No, no, baby, please, you can't put this on yourself. This is on all of us. And I didn't listen to you either. I haven't listened to you for a long time, and I'm sorry about that. I'm really, really sorry. What are we gonna do? You're going to figure it out with Isabel and Isaiah, the commune, and anyone else who wants to participate. And I know we're not working, but we'll be okay for a bit. They'll help you. And you? I'm going to do something else. What do you mean? What's something else? Do you remember when we were first dating and you had that rusty clunker of a car, like the last piece of crap on wheels that still had a working tape deck. Mm, you used to make me mixtapes. We made them for each other. And in the summer, we'd take long trips just to drive and roll down the windows and scream bad lyrics into the countryside. Oh, God, I miss that so much. I never told you this, but one of the first mixes you made for me, there was just something about it. I probably shouldn't have done this, but... Every line on every song, it felt like a direct message from your heart to mine. I absorbed it all in a really specific way, probably an unhealthy way, if I'm being honest. I remember after listening to it, really listening to it the first time, I was on the train and I was so caught up with how I felt that I missed my stop. And I stuffed my headphones into my pocket and rushed out the door so I could circle back and walk home. And later that night, I was going to bed and I wanted to listen to it again. So I dug my headphones out of my jeans and I looked at them and they were all tangled up like they get when they've been in your pocket too long. Tied together, knotted, interwoven, a complete mess. And I stared at them in my palm like that and I thought... This is what she does to me. 
This is how she makes me feel. This is my heart. This is what she does to my heart. And even now, after all this time, that's still how I feel. Your whole life with me has been an endless supply of beautiful songs on a perfectly sequenced mixtape with notes and sounds and instruments that never fail to turn me into a knotted, tangled mess. Gemma. Shh. Let me finish. Because at some point I failed you, Shar. I stopped listening to the music because I stopped believing I was worth hearing it. And that's on me. I got so caught up in hating my job that I ended up hating myself. And if there was anything in my life that loved me, I didn't understand it. And I questioned it. And I shut it out. And that's exactly what I did to you. And I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it's not. When I saw you succeed with Redline, I saw a side of you I couldn't believe existed. It was so good and pure that I couldn't imagine you wanting it to end. Because I felt this renewed sense of devotion to you that that should have always been there, but wasn't. Because I was too caught up in my own bullshit to notice it. And it was like, like I could see some sense of self-worth for myself in what you were doing. And I clung to that. So when you told me you didn't want to do it anymore, I didn't know how to take that. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay because I know now. I know what I have to do. I've known since we broke into that lab and rescued that double F douche right on out of there. I can't stay here, Charlotte. I don't belong here. I need to go and fight and push back against what Emily is doing. It's what I'm meant to do. I know that now. What are you talking about? I mean, it's like something turned on inside me the other day. The music started playing again. I could stare right through the funhouse mirrors and see myself clearly. I spent the better part of 20 years working with that finicky, fake meat-eating motherfucker. Couldn't stand the sight of him until that built into hatred. For him, for my job, for myself, for never leaving. I even convinced myself to hate you a little for not insisting that I leave. Yeah, but I... I know. I, I know you did. I know you told me. But I told myself you were only saying that... I told myself I needed to work there anyway for a sense of stability, for an income, for our future child. But really, it was because I was afraid. Because what if Third Sight was the best I could do? What if that's all I was capable of? But it's not. And you know the moment I realized that? was when I dragged that same tofu-chewing boob who used to drive me banana-fucking-sunday splits who, out of some mad scientist lab, I felt something change inside of me. I felt like this was what I was supposed to do. Uh, it was probably just adrenaline or excitement. No. You're bound to feel things like that when you're essentially breaking the law. I'm telling you, that's not what it was, and 
please don't make me out to sound like some sort of criminal. Some laws are meant to be broken, like Isabel's boycott. You know that better than anyone. So, what, what does this mean? What are you trying to tell me? I'm telling you I'm going back. To our rail home. Bring anyone with me who wants to fight from the inside. I mean, it's your baby, Charlotte. Hell, it practically started at the exact same moment our son was born. I don't expect you to run it again, but you pushed for it. You led it, and everything good about it was yours. And I'm going to bring your baby back around. I'm going to fight until I win it back for you. Oh. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What? I, I used to have this dream. This dream about Monty before he was born. Can I tell you about it? Of course you can. I can? I want to hear it. He was just born. We were walking in the desert, and some some witch or evil wizard put a hex on me. And I couldn't breastfeed him. He was so hungry. So, so hungry, and he cried endlessly. But if I breastfed him, he would grow up to be a monster, a warlord. So I had a choice. I could either starve him, or I could feed the monster he would grow to be. And I always thought that was about Monty. You know, typical pre-parenting anxiety. But it wasn't. It was a premonition of Redline. That's not what this is. You're talking about going and fighting I'm and- not capable of being a warlord. You know that. But, so what are you capable of? And what's Emily capable of doing to you? Me walking away? That was me trying to starve it, kill it. But I can't do that myself. It's too big for me now. It's become this monster and it's hungry and it's, it's, it's going to rip you away from me. And I can't let this thing I created harm you. It won't. I promise it won't. Listen to me. You and Isabel and the others need to lead. Need to meet and talk and hammer out a good system that represents everyone. But that's not me. I need to get myself in some faces and raise a ruckus. Because that's who I am. But you taught me, with everything you've accomplished these last two years, that I need to do it for the right reasons. I need to do it to help others. Even others I hate. Gemma. I know. I know, I'm sorry. I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you too. And I love you. And I am going to fight for every single good thing you ever did. And then we're gonna fix the one or two important things you overlooked. I don't want you to go. Look at me. Give me your hands. Your headphones. My heart. Will you promise me you'll come back to me? Come back for your heart? I promise. But it's always going to be yours. No matter what. What can I get you? Glass of white wine. What you got there? A letter. For? You. What's it say? Tell you after I get my drink. The city is raising your rent. They're trying to price you out so they can install some Legion subsidiary chains. Burger drop, taco leak, pizza ghost. Pizza ghost? 
the hell is Pizza Ghost? <sighs> you know. Pizza Ghost, Pizza Ghost, we're the pizza you love the most. Order our delivery, pizza arrives mysteriously. Where'd it come from, who the heck knows, you'll have to ask the Pizza Ghost. So they, like, break into your house to deliver a pizza? I don't know, I think it's like a service where you make a copy of your keys so it can be delivered without you needing to answer the door. I, I don't know. Wanna know something? This country's going to hell. I'll drink to that. There you are, finally. I've been looking at every red line bar all day and night. Who the hell are you again? I'm you. Kind of. Except not. Right. Where's your camera crew? Taking five. I'm on my own. What made you assume I'd be in a bar? I spotted you on the news during the evictions yesterday. Hanging in the background, sporting an I-need-a-drink face, clear as that wine of yours. Yeah. Well, I gotta get a new job. Right. Well, about that. What's this? It's an offer. I've been flying this inexplicable bullshit thing solo, but it was designed for a co-pilot. The original idea was to feature you along with your brother. When your brother split, I saw that as a big opportunity and made it a show about finding him. But, uh, well, I'm not doing a very good job with that. And the producers are getting a little restless. Love my initiative, they tell me, but the show needs to be building somewhere. They want to see my, quote, biting personality interact with someone a little bit softer, unquote. So... I figured, if your brother wasn't interested, maybe you would be. That was always his idea, anyway, so rather than it being Stamatis and Stamatis on the case, it could be Nika and Nika on the case. What do you say? How would that even work? Wouldn't it be confusing if there's a a real me and a fake you? Wouldn't people get confused? Eh, the producers think it's quirky and fun. Like a dash of the meta mixing reality with fantasy. But more importantly, they want the Dimitri storyline wrapped up. They want us to find him, and I figured you probably knew where he was, right? What's this? You're revising my contract already? It's the letter you wrote to Dimitri. I got it from Chelmsworth. I figured you might want to deliver it to him yourself. Or let us do it for you. You tell us, we find him, inexplicable riddle solved, and you're on your way to TV fame and stardom. Stardom. Right. Well, isn't that what you wanted? This is a long way from monologuing at an open mic night, you know. Maybe, but it's still a garbage show. Oh! Okay, wow. Um, let me tell you something, you ungrateful little prick. I have been an actress for ten years. Do you know how much garbage I've worked on? Sure, I get picky sometimes. I say no to all sorts of work. If someone offers me a part of some brain-dead female love interest without a mind of her own, if the script is dominated with wonderfully smart and competent men while my role is the cliché generic cheerleader housewife secretary who shuts up and plays dumb, if the writer gave more insight into the size of my tits than my personality, oh, if some producer hints at some kind of favor in order for a bigger part, those are all emphatic fuck no's. And that's not easy, because that shit is everywhere. But I work. And I survive with some goddamn integrity. Yeah, this show might be garbage, but at the end of the day, it's garbage I can just throw away and leave behind without getting its stench all over me. And you're sitting there judging me while you take the check of some moneyed asshat who wants to buy the world so she can watch it burn from the farthest distance. It's more complicated than that. Oh, sure, you're so misunderstood. Look, I hate to rain on your parade, but the rags-to-riches story is only in the movies. You want fame, you gotta earn it. But this out-of-the-blue offer is the closest you're gonna get. All you need to do is tell me one thing. Where is Dimitri? Or lead me right to him and let us film it. I don't care. We can kick your first episode off with a dramatic showdown between the two of you. Or, or not. Let us do it solo. Your call. What do you say? 
Do you want to be on TV with me? What's your name? Your real name? <sighs> Nicole? You're shitting me. <laughs> Pretty close, right? Nicoletta and Nicole. Hitting the town. Solving mysteries. Mixing shit up. So what do you say? Do you want to get famous with me, Nika? What are you afraid of? Of all the people shepherding the Red Line pilgrims to Wonderland, Isabel waited the longest. There were stragglers, people who needed help pulling their trunks and luggage, small pieces of furniture strapped to their backs with bungee cords and rope. She welcomed them all, told them which transfers to make, said she would catch up with them soon. She held her exodus sign over her head proudly, paying no attention to the occasional sneer or nasty remark. She would give it another day. People knew how to read maps, after all. People could find their own way. And there was more work to be done after they settled into Wonderland. Exciting work. Of course, she had other reasons to delay her arrival. After the low turnout on her final day, she texted Isaiah and Omi, saying she would arrive shortly. Plenty of notice for them to meet her at the terminus, help her with all that wide-open air on the walk to Wonderland. Isabel pressed her hands together as she transferred from lines green to blue. She rode the escalator to the surface and gripped her shawl tight over her shoulders. And then she saw them. All of them. Hundreds of pilgrims standing outside, waiting. Waiting for her. There she is! One of them cried. And then everyone cheered and applauded, startling her so much she almost stepped back and toppled down the escalator. Her mouth hung open. She felt her eyes swell with tears. She could hear her heart beating. Well. Well. She locked eyes with Isaiah, who was staring at his feet. He looked up quickly and gave her a sorrowful look, shaking his head. This hadn't been his idea. Omi's either, based on her expression. These people had wanted to come, to meet her, out of their own volition. And how could she question that? They'd all decided to follow her here, after all. She couldn't turn around and chastise them for wanting to complete their journey together. I guess there's only one thing to do, then. Thank you. Please, please, there's something I want to say. Now, I don't mean to liken myself to some great biblical figure. But this little trip of ours reminds me of the book of Exodus, with Moses leading the Israelites into the land of, of milk and honey. Not, not a perfect analogy. I'm certainly no Moses. And the only promise we can expect from Wonderland is one of hard work and struggle, not dairy and sweets. This is not going to be easy. I always thought it was especially cruel of God not to let Moses into the land he struggled to lead his people into. You all know this story. His people are dying of thirst, so Moses talks to God, and God says, Take this staff. Knock it against the rock once. Water will flow and the people will drink. So Moses says to the people, here's your water. 
Make sure to thank God for turning on the taps. Except he knocks the staff twice. And this makes God angry. Angry enough that he does not allow Moses to enter the promised land. No, Moses needs to stand at the border and watch his people enter as he is stranded on the outskirts. His only comfort is knowing he accomplished what he set out to do. But he can't enjoy the fruit of his labor. He can't celebrate with his people. And why not? Well, because God is kind of a jerk. Oh, I know the message we're supposed to get out of that story. Put your faith in God, no matter what. Obey God, no matter what. Trust God, no matter what. But what if Moses slipped? What if he just made a mistake? What if it wasn't about a lack of trust, but about something else, something more innocent? Of course. That's probably not what it was. No. He knocked the first time and nothing happened. And he was afraid, afraid of looking like a fool, holding a big stick in front of thirsty mouths with no water. So he knocked again and the water rushed out. What I'm trying to tell you is I... In this moment, my idea of God is all of you. It's people. It's the goodness in people. The goodness in all of you who heard my words. Listen to what I had to say. Despite all the trouble your faith in me brought you, you didn't waver. You believed in me. You trusted me. And despite all that, despite all that goodness... I haven't put my complete faith and trust in you. This is my own personal little staff knocking twice against the rock. I can't cross over into our wonderland because I can't. I I can't. I have a condition. Had it since I was young as long as I can remember. I have extreme agoraphobia. It's severe enough that it completely immobilizes me when I'm out in the open unless I have some help. Someone covering me up with blankets or coats, their bodies, whatever they have. I'm, I'm sorry I kept this from you. Smart people told me not to, but I was... Too damn proud to listen. I feared you would see it as a weakness. I was afraid you'd think it defined me. And I hoped if I could be mayor in a city that's so frequently underground. In clothes protected. Well, then maybe I could get by. But now, now that I'm facing this chasm with all that open air now now that I'm facing all your good glorious faces I realize I was wrong not to trust you even if you judge me I I, th I think that the crowd began to shift and move right before her eyes raising their arms over each other 
a human bridge of protection for her to walk safely under. Form a line. Come on, keep it going. Come with us. We'll take you home. You'll be okay. Keep it going. Extend it. Run to the end of the line. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Isabel walked with a slight bent, ducking her head under shorter sets of arms, bent in the center of all those bodies, with thanks on her face and in her voice, silently wiping away tears as these rebels led her to their new home half a mile away. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Greater Boston is written and produced by Alexander Danner and Jeff Andrews and with recording and technical assistance from Mark Harmon. Thank you to Patreon supporter Rasmus. You can also support Greater Boston on Patreon at patreon.com slash greaterboston. This episode featured James Capobianco as freed friend Paletti, Lydia Anderson as Gemma Lindsay Coolidge, Rick Zieth as lawyer, Mike Linden as Oliver West, Jeff Andreessen as Chuck Octagon, Summer Unson as Charlotte Lindsay Coolidge, Kelly McCabe as Nika Stamatis, Kristen DiMercurio as Fake Nika, uh, uh, Nicole, Braden Lamb as Leon Stamatis, and Jessica Washington as Isabel Powell. With Graham Rowett as bartender, and Exodus Pilgrims voiced by Colin J. Kelly, Amanda McColgan, Jack P.V. House, and Alex Welch. Charlie on the MTA performed by Emily Peterson and Dirk Teedy. Interviews recorded with Greater Boston residents. Transcripts available at greaterbostonshow.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Greater Boston. The city is raising your rent. They're trying to price you out so they can install some Legion subsidiary chains. Burger drop. Taco link. <laughs> <laughs> These are awful names. It's true. They're just the worst. I practiced this so I wouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. All right, let's do this, McKim. The city's raising your rent. They're trying to price you out. <laughs> Sorry. The city's raising your rent. They're trying to price you out so they can install some Legion subsidiary chains. Burger drop. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, sorry. Okay. <sighs> I'm just going to do this, guys. You got it. city's raising your rent. They're trying to price you out so they can install some Legion subsidiary chains. Burger drop. I knew it. No. I knew it. <laughs> The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In the alley, the scent is stronger, overpowering. As I watch, the overhead lamps flicker and wink out one by one. God damn it. No. The girl appears briefly under the last streetlight, the headphones snug against her ears, the Walkman clasped to her hip. She's oblivious as she walks, lost in her own world. Hey, stop! I need to talk to you! Then she swallowed up by the darkness again. Helen! Wait a second! It strikes her in the gloom so fast she barely has time to scream. 
She falls into the edge of the lamplight and lies there, bleeding, motionless. The man's skin is scaly, flaking, and there are patches of soot on his cheeks. He stares at me with eyes like midnight. Eyes that are devoid of remorse, devoid of humanity. He's one of them. I turn and run, and I don't look back. The Road of Shadows, a new mystery and suspense audio drama by Mark R. Healy, creator of The Strata. Listen now at theroadofshadows.com. Thank you.